Welcome to Sounds Erotic, the voices of erotica. Allow me to tell you a little about the show. Sounds Erotic is a weekly podcast that introduces you to the most unique, interesting, and successful people in erotica. We will explore topics that you might never have considered and introduce you to forms of erotica that pique more than just your interest. Leading you on this journey will be me. Who am I? My name is Alex Anders, and as an erotica author, I have published more than 40 titles. My stories have been translated into German, Spanish, French, and you can find a lot of them as audiobooks narrated by yours truly. I have always been drawn to all forms of sex, so I have written stories for both men and women, whether you are straight, gay, or bi. All of my stories can be found at alexandersbooks.com, and I look forward to you checking it out. But that's enough about me. More importantly, I am very pleased today to have as a guest the creator of one of the largest ebook distribution companies in the world, who is also an author, Mr. Mark Coker, founder of Smashwords. Welcome. Hi. Great to be here. I'm glad you're here. For those who don't know, Smashwords is not only an ebook distributor, but it's also an aggregator of books. So authors come to Smashwords. We upload our books. It gets distributed through Smashwords, but also through Apple, through Barnes & Noble, through Kobo, through Sony, through Diesel, and a few other companies. Not only that, Mark was involved with a rather important controversy involving the Constitution, PayPal, and erotica. But we'll get to that in a little bit here. First, let's find a little bit about you, Mark. Where are you from? Well, I'm from California. Born in Berkeley and now living in Silicon Valley. And what did your parents do growing up? My father uh, was an engineer at IBM. My mom was a biologist. Actual research biology or? Uh, plant genetics. Interesting. So working working with tissue culture, helping to naturally select for stronger breeds of broccoli and lettuce, things like that. Oh, wow. Was it a reading household growing up? Yeah, I, we were always surrounded by books growing up. You know, my, my parents would read to us, and you know, from a very early age, I was reading. At one point, they um, to entice me to read even more, they offered to pay me a penny a page for every page I would read. Are you kidding? <laughs> that was actually a good idea. And how many books did you get to during that period? Um, I don't know, but I know that. Well, I know that I, I earned. I earned $96 because that's what uh, my big dream from a very early age. And so, you know, I'm probably, I was probably six or seven years old at that point. wanted to buy an outboard motor so that I could attach the motor on my uh, parents' little sailboat. Mm -hmm. So that was my, that was the extent of my big dreams as a child. wanted to have that motorboat. And so I earned the $96 that allowed us to go to Sears and buy an outboard motor. Oh, that's so funny. That's so intriguing. Yeah, it is funny. I don't know if I've ever told that story to anyone. What intrigued you about books? What books did you choose to read during this period? Well, you know, my first big memory of a book that had a profound impact on me, just in terms of, like, the joy that I experienced from it and the magic that I experienced, was from Beverly Cleary. I think the title is A Mouse on a Motorcycle or A Mouse on a Motorcycle. So, you know, it was about a, a little mouse that would put on a little eggshell helmet and you know, a little motorcycle that he tooted around on. And how old are you? Oh, gosh, I don't know. Six, maybe six or seven. This shows just how different people are because I can remember, you know, I was thinking of the question, and then I thought, well, what would my answer to the question be? 
And I grew up dyslexic uh, with a form of dyslexia, which didn't mean that words were jumbled up. It just meant that when I read a word, it would take a second before it hit my brain. So it brought a lot of discomfortable memories from having to read in class. And reading was just so slow for me that I never, ever read. And the incentive for me to start reading was that uh, when I was 14, I was watching TV, laying in my parents' bedroom. Nothing got on TV, so I rolled over and I grabbed one of my father's books. And I uh, just randomly opened it. And when I opened it, it was a sex scene. Um, between the characters, and I, 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 you know, I closed it, looked around, see if there's anyone else home. Then I reopened it, and I continued reading. And then I went back and read from the beginning of the entire scene, and I thought, wow, this is really interesting. So I went back and read the entire book. It was Jackie Collins' Chances. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> um, some people have compared uh, the novel that my wife and I wrote to Jackie Collins. Well, I, I do remember another formative reading experience. I was at a cabin with some friends, and they had a Judy Bloom book. forget which one it was, but it had some pretty racy scenes, and I remember that was quite exciting as, a, <laughs> you know, as an 11-year-old. <laughs> it's amazing how you can inspire reading in many different ways. <laughs> well, you know, I think it's, it's all good. You know, the, the more we can get kids reading, the better. Oh, I agree. So what came first, your desire to write or your desire to open up a, a bookstore? Well, um, I never had a desire to open up a bookstore, but I always enjoyed writing. I remember I first really discovered my joy of it in high school with creative writing. I took a creative writing class, and uh, you know I've always enjoyed the creative arts. I always enjoyed building things with my imagination, not just stories, but ceramics, physical things with your hands. So, you know, I always just loved books, and I always loved hanging out in bookstores. I don't know why, but bookstores were always just kind of these magical places to me. Same thing with libraries. Just always like hanging out around books and picking up random books and just exploring them. So, you know, I'd always dreamed of writing a book. I always thought that that would be a lot of fun. Just never thought it would be a book about soap operas, which is what I originally wrote with my wife. When I was going to school at Berkeley, mm -hmm. I lived in a co-op there called Barrington. The place was later condemned because it was a drug den. Um, but there are about 180 residents that lived there. The place was covered with really cool, probably drug-inspired graffiti. And my suite mate was the editor of, I guess you'd call it a zine, called the Barrington Bull. And in the Barrington Bull, as the editor of the Barrington Bull, he would invite all the members of the house to contribute poetry, short stories, pictures, drawings, whatever. And once a month, he would Xerox it all out and then distribute it to the house members. And I thought the Barrington Bowl was just really, really cool. And then the next year, I moved to a different co-op at Berkeley. And inspired by the Barrington Bowl, I created my own zine for the house. And, and the house was called Ridge Project, and so I called it the Ridge Roach. <laughs> and after one of the most common creatures, cockroaches, in that house. <laughs> and um, that was my first foray into publishing. And, and into media, and that was a lot of fun. Um, it was, I just I always found writers and creative people very inspiring to me. 
So, you know, I did that for about a year, year and a half, and then let someone else take over those duties. So that was my first experience in publishing. After I graduated from Berkeley, I worked in public relations, so it was still very media-related. Mm-hmm. You know, as a PR person, you're pitching stories to the media, so you're always thinking about stories. And the very best PR people are the ones who can visualize the story or what the story should be or, you know, visualize the story that would resonate with the media's audience. And that was a lot of fun for me. But even while I was doing that, I dreamed of how fun it would be to be a journalist. So around the time that, that I was getting less involved with Dovetail and starting to think about Smashwords, I, uh, I got a job uh, writing for VentureBeat, which is a big Silicon Valley business blog. And uh, that was a lot of fun. My beat was covering conferences. And so I attended a lot of conferences here in the Bay Area, most of them startup-focused. And that's where I did a lot of my research to help inspire the business model for Smashwords. VentureBeat is one of the most influential financial, I guess, what is it, a blog? It's a blog. It focuses on technology business. It's one of the go-to blogs, though, isn't it, for finance? Well, for startup finance, their target market is really entrepreneurs and venture capitalists. Mm -hmm. And so they're very similar to TechCrunch, though not as large. That was a lot of fun writing for them, and I know my writing got better. The editor there, Matt Marshall, is an excellent editor. And what came first? Did uh, BoobTube come first, or did Smashwords come first? BoobTube, definitely. So the story behind BoobTube is that around the time that I was starting to get, you might say, burnt out on the public relations business, it mm-hmm. was shortly after the first dot-com bust. We hired this young woman who was previously a, a reporter for Soap Opera Weekly magazine, and that woman later became my wife. <laughs> I remember her telling me these stories about how the soap opera actors behind the scenes were even crazier than the, the roles that they played. <laughs> because her job was to go to the, the set at the studios in Los Angeles, Hollywood, and interview the actors behind the scenes. So I suggested she write a book about it, and she said, well, why don't we write a book together? I thought, well, okay, that sounds different. I never dreamed of writing a book about soap operas. I thought, you know, by that point, if I was to write a book, I'd write a book related to marketing or public relations. So, you know, I dropped everything, and we both moved to Burbank for a couple months and started just interviewing soap opera industry insiders and collecting all their dirt. We got a lot of crazy stories, and then we moved to Vermont for a couple months and wove all those stories into a novel. And then we did what every good writer is trained to do. We did multiple revisions. You know, I can proudly say that the first draft of our novel was over 900 pages. (laughs) Just to, you know, just just to illustrate what newbies we were and, and how little we really understood. But we all start there. Right. So we did multiple revisions. We hired professional editors to help us improve the book, improve our writing. You know, we did multiple beta reader rounds, multiple more revisions. And eventually when we thought the book was in good shape, we shopped it around to agents. And we actually had two agents offer us representation, and we were able to interview them and choose the one we wanted. So that was a good position to be in. And we selected one of the top agencies in New York City to represent us. So they went out there. They were enthusiastic about our book, and they pitched it to major publishers of commercial women's fiction. And they were unable to sell it after two years. The common thread of feedback that they received is that the publishers weren't convinced that there was a large enough commercial market for a, a novel targeting soap opera fans. 
previous soap opera themed novels had not performed well. So as a result, they were reluctant to take a chance on the book. And so, you know, as you might imagine, it was really disappointing for us. We wrote this book because we felt we had a really important story to tell. We wanted to share the story with the world. We didn't write it to make a million dollars, although certainly that would be nice if it became a bestseller. But, you know, here we were confronted with a situation where publisher was telling us, nope, we're not going to let you have a chance to reach readers. I think this is a common thread with authors because I can tell you before I became an erotic writer, I wrote in, um, <laughs> I wrote in, in, uh, kids nonfiction. And, uh, the first book that I came up with that I, I tried to sell was a book giving advice to 13 year olds. And I was able to, like yourself, to find an agent. I, I got a Dr. Phil's agency to represent my book. And we shopped it to all the major publishers, just as you said. And, you know, many were intrigued and they asked for certain changes. And I made the changes and ultimately weren't able to sell the book either. So <laughs> because of exactly that, the market, they said, well, I don't think I don't know whether the market is strong enough to support us, you know, selling this book, Random House. And, and Simon Schuster and all those guys. So I think it is a, a familiar threat. Yeah, I, I think every writer worth their salt has been rejected multiple times. Yeah, the Lord um, knows. Yeah, and so I thought about what are the next steps. We knew that soap opera fans really enjoyed the book because we had received feedback from beta readers, people that we did not know. It's very important that your beta readers are not known to you. You can't trust friends and family to give you honest, critical feedback. So, you know, we knew we had a decent book, and it was actually our agent who suggested we consider self-publishing. And that seemed like a reasonable idea. I'd already started thinking about it. I had read Dan Pointer's book by that point, and it seemed like a reasonable option, but just didn't seem totally satisfying to me, yeah, the idea of publishing in print. Because it's still, if you self-publish in print, you still can't get that mainstream bookstore distribution that's so important. Mm-hmm. So I thought about it and thought about it, and ultimately I just started getting really mad. I thought, you know, this is this is a big problem. I envisioned hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of other talented writers in the world who would never see their manuscripts as a book simply because a publisher was unwilling to take a chance on them. And thinking about so many classics that we recognize today as classics that didn't really become classics until long after the writers were dead. And I imagined all the classics that have been lost to humanity simply because they weren't published. And so I thought, well, there's got to be a better solution here. And, you know, since my background is here in Silicon Valley and I've been involved in startups for 15 years and investing in startups and doing my own, um, I thought, well, this is a problem that could be solved by throwing some technology at it. Uh, what if I could create a free online publishing platform that would allow any writer anywhere in the world to instantly publish an ebook? And if I could create something like that, it would allow me to take a chance on every single writer. And it would allow writers to publish what they want, and it would give readers the freedom to decide what's worth reading. Because ultimately, the readers are in charge anyway. You know, they decide what books go on to become bestsellers, and that's what we created so I started working on the business plan probably late 2005, early 2006. And what was the uh, what was the atmosphere like? Was um, the Kindle around? There was no Kindle at that time. There were some very early ebook reading devices out there. So you know, around the time 2005, ebooks were generally considered a major flop. <laughs> there, there'd been a lot of buzz about ebooks in the late 90s and you know, right around 2000, but you know, along with the dot com bust, ebooks busted as well. 
Mm-hmm. Because, you know, around 2000, a lot of people were saying, you know, ebooks are the next big thing. They're going to replace print books. Print books are dead. And none of that happened. So a lot of people had written off ebooks. So around 2005, ebooks probably accounted for, I think the exact number is somewhere around 0.15%, like not even a quarter of 1% of the <laughs> overall U.S. book market was ebooks. Ebooks were just off the radar. But I was looking at the data, the data from the Association of American Publishers, because they were tracking the data, and even though the numbers were negligible, they were increasing each year. So I thought, well, this is really interesting. There could be a market here, and you know, again, I'm a big believer in technology, and I know how quickly things can develop with technology once all the pieces fall into place. So I started working on that business plan, and it took me a couple of years, and then we launched Smashwords in early 2008. And so the initial focus was just simply, like I said, a self-publishing platform for eBooks. That was 2008, and the first year we published 140 books from 90 authors. I was thrilled with that. I was thrilled that 90 authors had entrusted their book to us. And if I can remember, if I remember precisely, and tell me if I'm wrong, when I first published my my non-erotic book, I went out looking for places where I can distribute it. And if I'm not mistaken, I saw a little company by the name of Smashwords, and I was going through filling out the process for it. And the one thing that kind of just gave me pause, and I, I kind of put it in the back burner for a little bit, was it said, don't expect to get rich selling your books here, right. which you might sell a couple extra books. Was that your company that had said that? That's us. That would be you guys. Yep. We have that same language still in all of our online documentation. We go out of our way to communicate to authors that they should not expect to make a lot of money. I never wanted people coming to Smashwords thinking they were going to get rich because the truth of the matter is most authors' books don't sell well. Even traditionally published books don't sell well. And um, it's just really important to not have those outlandish expectations. It's great to have great ambition, but not the expectations because it's so often we've seen authors come to Smashwords. They'll go to all the trouble to format their book, to publish it with us. And a week later, they'll remove the book because maybe they only sold one or two copies or maybe they didn't sell any copies. And so they're mad. They want to blame it on us that they didn't sell any books. Well, you know, that's just, it's counterproductive. They're not punishing us. They're punishing themselves when they do that. You know, when I look at our bestsellers today, they're books that have been out there for a few years. They're books that started off you know, as really poor sellers, but then grew over time, mm-hmm. you know, as they built readership. So. Yeah, there are a lot of people out there that will try to sell authors on this big dream and then charge them lots of money for the dream. And I, I just wanted to be totally honest with people that you're probably not going to sell a lot. Right. And if you do, be happy. If you don't, you're in the boat with most everyone else. Well, let's go back. It's uh, now, I guess, maybe beginning 2009, you have about 90 authors that are signed up with Smashwords. Yeah, so in 2009, the second year, that's when things really started to take off for us. We ended that year with 6,000 books, Mm. up from 140 the year before. In, In 2009, we made a really big decision. It was kind of a risky decision, but, you know, I like risk. I saw an opportunity to create an e-book distribution company. It wasn't part of the original business plan. The original business plan is that we let authors publish their books on Smashwords, sell them on Smashwords, and that was it. But in 2009, saw all these big retailers coming online and thought, well, you know, there's an opportunity here to create an e-book distribution company. You had Ingram out there, who was probably the world's largest print distributor, and I thought, well, maybe there's an opportunity to create the Ingram of eBooks for self-published authors. And so that's what we set out to do. The first retailer that we 
signed a deal with was Barnes & Noble. Then we signed a deal with Sony and then Kobo. And that was really exciting. And in 2010, when we caught wind that the Apple iPad was coming out and that they were going to operate a bookstore, got on the phone and started calling into Apple to see how we could distribute to Apple. And we were fortunate enough to have Apple give us a chance. They made it very clear. These are all the requirements if you want to be an authorized aggregator for our store. And here's your deadline. And the deadline was like three weeks away. So in three weeks, we had to completely transform almost everything about our service and how we prepare the book and all that. And we went for it. And we met their requirements and had like 2,200 e-books in the iBook store on day one mm. of their launch. And we've been a, an Apple aggregator ever since. So we, we love Apple. <laughs> such a great partner for us and especially for our authors and our publishers. They've been really supportive of what we're doing. So we're probably distributing, I don't know, something over 80,000 books to Apple right now. I imagine we're probably one of their largest suppliers by title count. And I think you are. Apple is the reason I actually came back to Smashwords because after filling out the initial forms, which I'm sure a lot of authors did back in 2008, um, I, I went looking for a place or a way I can get my books onto Apple. And then I saw a list of aggregators, and on that list was a company by the name of Smashwords, and I thought, Smashwords, that sounds very familiar. Cool. I think I might have signed up for them already. And that's when I went back and uh, started uploading books, initially non-erotica, and, you know, trying to live the dream. Awesome. Back in 2010, how many employees did you have? Oh, boy, two. Two. Uh, well, or two and a quarter. Yeah, so, you know, in the very early days, start off with just two of us. There was myself and our CTO, our developer. And so it was two of us for 2008, 2009, 2010. And that quarter person was our finance person. And then we added our first, or our, I should say our third employee about a year and a half ago, probably early 2011. I've forgotten the date now. And then started adding more people after that. We hit profitability about a year and a half ago. Oh, nice. And so that's the point at which we started hiring. So about a year ago, we were probably three, three or four employees. Mm -hmm. Now we're up to 13. So we've um, grown quite a bit in the last year, and you know we'll be hiring more people in the next few months, I expect. 13 is amazing because I know all the things that have to go on for a company of this magnitude with the companies you guys work with. What is the process? An author comes to your website. They upload the material. What happens next? Yeah, well, they come to the website, they sign up for a free account, we send them a confirmation email. That confirmation email tells them what their next steps are. Mm -hmm. And the next step is to download and study the Smashwords style guide that tells you how to prepare your book for Smashwords. You prepare any book cover image, and then you, once you've got all that put together, you click on the publish link, fill out the metadata, you know, the title, the book description, the category, and then you upload the book to Smashwords, and then... Typically, within three, four, or five minutes after you upload it, the book is automatically converted into up to nine different ebook formats so that your book can be read on any e-reading device. And then it's listed available for sale at the top of the Smashwords homepage. Every single book published at Smashwords, if it has a cover image, gets its 15 minutes or so of fame on the Smashwords homepage. And then, um, you know, once the book is in the system, you know, I should note that the author sets the price of the book. Once the book is in the system, it goes into a queue to be reviewed by our vetting team, and our vetting team will 
will look at the book, make sure that it's formatted properly, make sure that it meets the mechanical requirements of our retailers, make sure that it's got a valid copyright, that it doesn't look like it's illegal content, and then if we approve the book, it goes into our premium catalog, and then that's what we distribute out to the retailers. And we let the authors choose which retailers they're going to. So when you sign up for Smashwords, you're automatically opted into all of our different retail channels, but you have the ability to opt out of any channel that you don't want to reach. So, for example, if you're already uploading directly to Amazon, you'll opt out of our Amazon channel. So that, that's pretty much how it works in a nutshell. We ship the books out to the retailers approximately once weekly. The retailers start selling the books, and then they report those sales back to us on a delayed basis. And then we report those sales in aggregated form back to our authors. And then sometime after the end of each month, usually 30 to 60 days after the end of each month, the retailers pay us for the book that they sold. And then we report those payments back to the authors. And then once a quarter, we pay the authors. So what's the process specifically with Apple? Because I know that with uh, Barnes & Noble, the process is pretty quick. Um, you upload the book. The book ends up in Barnes & Noble within about, I don't know, maybe maybe a week and a half, maybe two weeks on the long end. But with Apple, it's a much more extended process. And we authors are always wondering, well, what's the difference there? Well, for Apple, it depends. You know, when we distribute a book to them, it depends on what kind of book we're distributing. So most of the, uh, at least until recently, most of the books that we shipped to Apple appeared live in their store within a couple days. Lately, they've had a little bit of a backlog, so it can take up to two weeks. But for erotica titles, they've always put erotica titles through a, a separate vetting process on their end, and that has typically caused a delay of, you know, anywhere from two weeks to two months before the book appears at Apple. And I have to ask this for my fellow authors. When do you think we'd be able to see real-time sales reports from Apple? It's always a big question. You know, you, you don't see it from your end, but being a part of the author community, there's a discussion we're always talking about. Oh, I wonder when uh, Apple's going to report. Do they report? Yeah, usually it's on the 15th. No, it's on the 17th usually. Oh, okay. Oh, everyone, it's been reported. So everyone rushes over to Smashwords, checks their reports. It's a whole yeah. lot to do. So when, when will we not have to do that? Well, cross your fingers, knock on wood. I think we can start getting closer to that by the end of this year. Oh. I think the, the technology is certainly in place at Apple mm -hmm. that we might be able to start doing that. It'll be a big integration project for us. I, I think the first retailers that we'd be able to do that for would be Apple and probably Barnes & Noble because they're the ones that uh, report to us the quickest, or at least they make the data available to us. You know, Currently with Apple, we wait until the end of the month before we load their sales reports because a couple of days after the end of the month, they give us the final audited sales figures for that month, and then we'll load the sales figures in. Um, but Apple does have the ability to provide us daily and weekly what they call trending information. Okay. So you might call those numbers unaudited. They, you know, they change a little bit by the time that they proclaim the numbers fully baked at the end of the month. So the, that's what we're looking at doing is integrating some of that trending data so that we can provide faster sales reports. I know it's probably the number one item on our author's wish list is faster sales reporting. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, from experience, I can tell you it, it's a topic of conversation on the forums. But we do love Smashwords, and we continue to use Smashwords because you guys offer something vital that we can't get anywhere else. And this is a hint for our readers out there. If you see a book that's free on the Big Gun ebook distribution site, we know who we're talking about, the way our authors do that is that we first set our book for free on Smashwords. 
we then distribute that free book to various sites, including Apple, including Barnes & Noble. And then the big gun sees the price has been changed on all those other sites and then changes it on their site. So what happens is it will be free for about a few days or maybe even a week on that site. However, it's been free for a month, a month and a half on Smashwords. So really, if you're looking for some great free books, you should really come to Smashwords first because that is always where it will be. That's just a hint for readers. But okay, so Smashwords, it's up and running. Everything is going along well. Growth is going well. You get a phone call or did you get an email first from an author about PayPal? Well, yeah, so all this came down just last month in February. Okay. Around uh, probably the week of February 6th. It was sometime in the first 10 days. Actually, no, it was probably closer to around the second week. started hearing some rumblings from our authors that Bookstrand had been contacted by PayPal and was being forced to remove erotica books containing bestiality, incest, and rape. And so a couple authors started asking, well, has PayPal contacted you? And the answer was no, no, we haven't heard from them. You know, keep in mind that we've been working with PayPal for four years, almost four years now, and have never even once received any kind of complaint about our books. You know, we've always had, you know, I think very strict standards for what we'll take, and our standards mirror what the major ebook retailers will take. And so, you know, we've been satisfied with our requirements and never thought that PayPal would be dissatisfied with them. But I think people started speculating, you know, is Smashwords going to be next on some of the message boards? And uh, I don't know if I can tie it in precisely to that, but on um, February 18th, I received an email. And it was from their compliance department. I imagine it was a form email. It's probably the same email that others have received, basically informing us that we needed to remove all content that contained bestiality, incest, and underage content within four or five days. Otherwise, our account was going to be limited. Now, I had heard many stories before of, you know, both authors and, and also uh, retailers having their accounts shut down by PayPal. I know a lot of our erotica authors had expressed this as a concern over the last 12 months that PayPal might go after us. So we got that email, and obviously it was not the type of email I wanted to receive. <laughs> the title that they actually pointed to as an example of a violating title was actually a mainstream paranormal romance book. Really? That contained, well, I guess because it was paranormal and it contained rare creatures, that they were concerned it was bestiality. Shape-shifting. Yeah, maybe, yes. You know, how dare a fictional character have sex with an animal. Mm. So I immediately started, you know, trying to get in touch with PayPal. Both It started off, you know, with email to, look, you're in San Jose. You know, we're here in the Bay Area. We're in Los Gatos. Um, I can come over, meet with you guys. And the first responses were pretty standoffish, you know, that they didn't have meetings. You know, they pointed me to their rules and said, these are the rules. But eventually worked my way in to PayPal. It started with me picking up the phone and calling into their support group. The support person I reached at PayPal happened to be an author, a writer, a member of the Romance Writers of America. Hmm. And she knew who Smashwords was. She knew we weren't some scam. And, you know, I expressed what was happening and my concern that our account was about to be turned off. And this kind woman took it upon herself to make sure we got connected with the right people. And then I also, just by coincidence, you know, when I got that email, 10 minutes after I got that email, you know, I was still kind of in shock. I was at the San Francisco Writers Conference. I shared what had just happened with a friend of mine who's in the publishing business. Turned out she had a brother who was an executive at PayPal. Oh. 
not in the PayPal division, but another group company underneath eBay. Yeah. And she was she was very upset that PayPal would consider censoring anything. You, know, you talk to anyone in publishing, and censorship is just a four-letter word. It's, it's bad. And so you know, she connected me with her brother. Her brother connected me with someone else. So very quickly, within a couple of days, I was in conversation with PayPal. Now, my immediate concern that I expressed to them was that they're giving me these really vague directives about what they allow, what they don't. How can you ban rape? Um, rape is a theme in mainstream literature. How can you ban incest? It's not practical. Where do you draw the line? And so I went back and forth with them and you know, expressed my concerns that I really needed them to draw some finer lines. Did they just want us to draw the lines at erotica, rape for titillation? Where should we draw those lines? And, you know, this entire time, you know, we're we're feeling like we've got a gun to our head, that if we don't comply quickly, the account's going to be turned off. And every time I logged into PayPal, you know, this warning screen came up <laughs> that our account was about to be limited and, you know, getting the automated emails from PayPal that our account was about to be limited. And so we're trying to furiously work towards some deadline. And so had the conversations with them, and finally they came back to me and said, sorry, we can't draw those definitive lines. That, and they, they said in writing that we are compelled to do this in order to maintain compliance with the credit card associations and the banks upon which we depend. And so that's when I made the reluctant decision to do my own interpretation of their vague rules. And so the interpretation that I, you know, my sense, even though they didn't explicitly state it, is that they were targeting erotica. And I was very worried that they were going to target all of erotica or say that all erotica was bad. And so I tried to limit the damage. And so I came up with revised policies for Smashwords in which we proposed we would prohibit rape, incest, bestiality, and erotica books. You know, if the purpose was for titillation, then we were going to ban it. And so that was um, that was Friday the 24th of February. So that evening, after I received PayPal's final word on the matter, I notified the authors of what the plan was going forward. You know, I explained how it all came to happen and gave our authors until end of day Monday to basically self-enforce the new rules. So I wanted to let the authors voluntarily remove what now needed to be removed or not. So that weekend, I mean, it was almost instantaneous. The moment I sent out that email, things just exploded. And I can uh, jump in here to say that from the author's perspective, you know, we were following this process along. We were the first ones to know the erotic writers. We were the first ones to know when when uh, Bookstrand pulled. Mm -hmm. And then um, another company pulled that said it didn't have to do with PayPal, but the rules they were applying were the PayPal rules. And we were all sitting thinking, oh, man, is Smashwords next? Is Smashwords next? So when you send out that email, we hit the panic button. You know, yeah. we didn't know whether we we're going to. I personally have about... 25 titles that fall with under that category, a subset of one of those categories. And all of my books were going to be wiped out, which takes me back to only having four or five books on the shelf, which means you can't make a living doing it. Right, right. Yeah, I totally understand. So the author community, you know, the community, although there were some discussions going on, like over at Kindle Boards and over at Google Plus, there was a, a thread, and I imagine there were some other threads going on. It wasn't until we sent out that email that the author community really erupted in a big way. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there, it's fair to say that there was a lot of rage 
<laughs> uh, most of it was directed at PayPal, but a lot of it was directed at us. Mm-hmm. And you know, people very angry at me for letting them down, or you know, I, I got accused of all kinds of really bad things. That was a really tough weekend. I don't know how many emails I received that weekend, but I responded to every single one of them. And, you know, my concern is that, at least at that time, is that people were trying to attack me and they really didn't understand how much I tried to prevent this. And ultimately I failed and I was, I felt very bad that I failed. So that weekend things just really erupted. And then TechCrunch covered it. And some other blogs covered it. And so the story moved out of the private discussion forums of erotica authors and out of the private forums and even the public forums of indie authors into greater public consciousness. TechCrunch played a big role there. And then Slashdot did a story on it. And suddenly bloggers everywhere were talking about it. And it was, I mean, it was quite a spectacle see um, this instant rage that erupted on the internet and I mean in retrospect it was just really cool what happened although at the moment when I was in the middle of it and many of those attacks were coming straight at me it wasn't so exciting Uh, but so that next Monday morning I received a surprise phone call from a manager within the, the enforcement division at PayPal and I can only guess that they noticed the the outpouring of public sentiment that weekend And she said, you know, I I know you wanted some finer details on, you know, where you could draw the line. And she she wanted to share an idea with me. And the idea was, you know, what if we drew the line for books where incest, rape, bestiality are only, where those themes are only incidental to the book, so not the primary theme? What if we allowed that? That was basically her question to me. And I thought that was really cool that they even volunteered that to me. I didn't expect that. And, you know, I expressed my appreciation, but, I, you know, I also told her that that doesn't solve the problem, and it actually opens up even more gray area. You know, there are titles that are on the New York Times bestseller list today, and there were then, that contain some of those themes. So where do we draw the line? So it was a good conversation that we had, and she wanted to assure me that um, – well, first I should say that, you know, she expressed an interest in working with us in partnership to try to work through some of these issues so that we could reach a better solution that would make sense for us, for our authors, and make sense for PayPal. And so I told her, yes, you know, I am interested in working with you. I will work with you in good faith and, um, you know, let's try to reach a better solution here. And she assured me during that call that our account would not be immediately turned off pending the outcome of our discussions. So while we were still in discussions, our account was safe. So that was a big big load off of my shoulders. We had that conversation late morning Monday, so I immediately put together an email to notify our authors of this discussion that I had. And so in that email that I sent out that Monday, I told people that we were going to postpone the enforcement of the new terms of service pending the outcome of the discussion. Now, already that weekend, I had received, I don't know, probably dozens of emails from angry authors telling me that we should just dump PayPal, flip them the finger, and find someone else. Mm -hmm. But I knew from PayPal's email the Friday afternoon before that PayPal was saying that the credit card companies and the banks were behind this, that this was just PayPal trying to enforce those rules. Now, were they saying, did you get the impression that it was the credit card companies that had come to them and said, there's been a change, we're now enforcing, or is it PayPal looking at those rules and saying, well, we should be in alignment with those rules? 
My sense, and I've talked about this and blogged about it, my sense is that the credit card companies did not phone up PayPal and say, hey, we have a problem, we want you to enforce this. Now, it's possible they did, I don't know. But my sense is that PayPal was only trying to enforce these vague directives that they'd been previously been given possibly years ago by the credit card companies. And my assumption is that somebody in PayPal's compliance department stumbled across all of these exciting ebooks that in PayPal's view were suspect and possibly out of compliance. And so maybe Bookstrand was the first books that they stumbled across or Obsessica, I don't know. But obviously we got dragged into that. So I know a lot of our authors wanted us to just dump PayPal. But I took PayPal at their word from the moment they told me that they were just trying to comply with the banks and the credit cards, that that's what was in fact happening. And I knew that if we were to just simply leave PayPal, which of course we could have done, it would have been a lot of work, but we could have done it to find some other payment processor. Even that weekend, we started receiving queries from other payment processors. But I knew that if we went to another payment processor, ultimately the hammer would still come down on us again if the credit card companies and the banks were truly behind this. So simply going to another payment processor wouldn't provide our authors safe haven, and that's what I was looking for. I was looking to reach a permanently safe solution for our authors and for us. So, you know, that's when I made the decision to maintain the relationship with PayPal. And I, I, I caught a lot of heat for it because a lot of the authors out there did not trust PayPal. They thought PayPal was, you know, feeding us a line of bowl, that PayPal was just using the credit card companies as an excuse to impose their own moral values upon these books and all that. I mean, I, I read all the conspiracy theories out there about how evil PayPal was and what PayPal's motivations were and all the people who said they didn't trust PayPal. So, you know, whatever. I read all that. I made the decision that I was going to trust PayPal. And I made the decision that from just from the very first people I spoke with, starting with that customer service person and everyone else at PayPal, I really received the sincere sense from them that this was not an attempt at moralizing. It was that they were truly interested in working with us. You know, they told us that they wanted to maintain the relationship with Smashwords. And so what I viewed this as was a golden opportunity if we could play the cards right, to attack this problem with PayPal as our partner, not as our enemy. So that's what I set out to do. That's what I communicated to our authors that Monday afternoon. And I think after that Monday afternoon, some of the authors out there started recognizing that we were on their side, that we weren't just going to throw them under the bus. But still, you know, a lot of people didn't think that my approach was sensible. But I was in a tough position because, you know, I tried to be as transparent as possible, but I couldn't show all of my cards publicly right. because I felt like I was wading through a minefield where, you know, I have to maintain this partnership and this relationship with PayPal so that we can work in partnership. But I also need to um, orchestrate a campaign against the credit cards, the banks, and orchestrate a campaign that continues to put pressure on PayPal. And that's what I did. And I can tell you at this time uh, what the authors were thinking, at least you know some of the authors were thinking, we have had our issues with Bookstrand as independent authors. They have been overwhelmed by the independent movement and have had a hard time dealing with it. There was another website that has a shaky relationship with independence, but Smashwords has always been right there as a supporter of independent books. So we thought if Smashwords goes down, the next one to go would be either Amazon or Barnes & Noble. 
So if we don't stop it here, something bad is going to happen. So when we got a letter saying that you're complying, we just saw our lives kind of crumbling around us. And then we got the second letter saying, you know, we're in talks. I think there was a lot of hope. I don't know whether you still received a lot of emails, but at that point we were thinking, oh, wait, so we were right about Mark. You've always been a very vocal person. When when an issue comes up, you address it. You, you know, you're on some of the forums. And when issues come up, you, you talk about it. So when we saw, okay, well, you're in this process, we actually had hope that something good could possibly happen, especially since you said that the lockdown has been postponed indefinitely. That was a good sign for us. So that's when we started to feel sort of powerful and, and went out looking for ways that we can help with this campaign as opposed to just feeling like an individual that has no power. Right. And it was in that email, the, the Monday email, where I responded to people who were attacking me. And I, I tried to encourage people to realize that you're not helping the cause if you're attacking me. I'm on your side. It's important that you direct your voice to the folks who are responsible for this, and let's work in partnership. And that's the message I tried to send. And, uh, yeah, so I think people started to hear that message. But even at that time, even, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I was still getting, you know, nasty people tweeting at me, you know, what an ass I was or whatever, and, you know, receiving emails still every day, people angry at me. But, you know, I just tried to disregard those people because if I listened too closely to those people, then, of course, I would want to throw them under the bus. (laughs) Right. It was it, it was really tough because I I knew in my heart where I stood on this and I knew what I wanted to do for our authors so it was tough to have our authors attacking me but you know that was quickly I mean that was remedied fairly quickly I think for that week after that first weekend I think the TechCrunch and the in the uh, in the Flashdot story raised the attention of several prominent advocacy groups including the, the EFF which stands for. Electronic Frontier Foundation. So the EFF did a blog post voicing their opposition to PayPal's move. I think they they did the blog post Monday or Tuesday. So, you know, I sent them an email and offered a conversation. And later that week, you know, I had a conversation with the EFF and the two other anti-censorship groups that also joined. And so there we were in a conference call coordinating efforts across our organizations. And that that was... um, that was exciting. That's exactly what I wanted to happen. We had these independent groups coming in, supporting our cause, and they were doing it with their own voice. They were doing it for their own purposes because this is what they believe in, and we were just the poster child of the sin being committed against authors. So we did a lot of interesting coordination with them behind the scenes, and in the emails that followed, I kept authors up to date what was happening. I started escalating our effort. Very early that week, I didn't communicate this fully, but I put my plan together of what I thought needed to happen in order for us to move this mountain. And then I started executing on that campaign. And I wanted to create this rolling thunder, but this rolling thunder of increasing sound and scope. So, you know, obviously the authors were out there mad, blogging about it, talking about it, and I encouraged that. The first emails that went out went just to our erotica authors. So, you know. 2,900, 3,000 people. But then I escalated it to the entire author population at Smashwords, which was close to 35,000. So I did that in an email, and I gave people ideas for what they could do to help if they wanted to help. 
and I tried to make it clear to all of our authors that this was a threat against all of us, not just the erotica authors, and not just a subset of the erotica authors, but all of us, and started encouraging. What I wanted to happen is I wanted people to pick up the phone and start calling the credit card companies and put the pressure on the credit card companies, because if people called the credit card companies and put them under the spotlight, the credit card companies would say one of two things. They'd either say, yes, we're behind this, and this is why, and if that was the answer, then the spotlight goes to the credit card companies even more, and then they become, you know, they get to enjoy the rage, and <laughs> and if they denied it, then through their denial, they would be giving PayPal permission to loosen their policies. And so that was one of the legs of the campaign that I wanted to try to help facilitate. You know, the way I viewed this is that the authors were out there doing a great job of expressing themselves. And, you know, I thought that my contribution to this campaign could be helping to direct the energy that was out there, directed at the right places. So I tried to direct it at the credit card companies, the banks, and also at PayPal. I wanted people to keep the pressure on PayPal. But I also encouraged people to be respectful to PayPal. I didn't want people... And it was, you know, while we were negotiating in good faith with PayPal and they were doing the same with us, it was kind of tough for me to see some of the mean things that were said about PayPal because I didn't believe them. And I tried to correct people on that, but people had their own views and people were scared and I understand that. The other part of the campaign that I thought could help tip it over, I wanted mainstream media to catch hold of the story. So we did a lot of stuff behind the scenes to generate mainstream media attention. And a big turning point there was with Reuters. I was having a phone call with the Reuters reporter on a different topic, and he wanted to pick my brain about a story that he was thinking about doing. It was actually a story about Amazon that he was considering, and I suggested to him that there was a much bigger story, and I told him about the PayPal story, and he's very interested. You know, the mainstream journalists out there are just like the rest of us writers. Many of them are authors or aspiring authors. Many of them believe very strongly in the value of free speech. And they also understand the important role that journalists play yeah. in helping to shine a bright light on big problems. So what I suggested to the Reuters reporter is that if he wanted to help this campaign move forward, I told him I'd like him to call the credit card companies and the banks and put the question to them. Because I knew that once the credit card companies started getting phone calls from places like Reuters, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, New York Times, they would have no choice but to do the right thing. Um, I received a, a funny email. Uh, it was that first week after I sent out the Monday email where I talked about the banks. One of our authors, I don't remember who it was, said something like, thanks for giving me a reason to be hating more on the banks. <laughs> I thought that was so funny. Um, but it was also telling because I, I knew the banks were vulnerable. All these financial institutions were vulnerable to public pressure. And so it just meant that we needed to put the pressure on. And the pressure was already happening. So it was just a matter of getting this escalated within the media. The media was like the, I think, the final straw that could break the back of all this. Because once the media starts asking the questions, then it puts all of the financial institutions in a box that they can't get out of. The only way for them to get out of the box is to do the right thing. And so if you go back to that very first day that I received that first email from PayPal, my first inclination was not to eliminate all censorship. My first inclination was to mitigate the damage. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, I saw them targeting a subset of our erotica authors. So my first inclination was, okay, if we're going to lose this initial battle, I want us to at least build a protective moat around the other erotica. Because the number of authors affected by the initial proposed policy was pretty small. But if this spread to all erotica, if they were going to be the next ones to be targeted, then that would that would be even worse. And then once it got to erotica, where would it go beyond there? And so I wanted to mitigate the damage. That was my first inclination. But after that first weekend, I saw an opportunity to go for everything, to to stamp out all of this censorship once and for all. And, you know, what I started talking about was this idea of legal fiction. And I've got to credit our authors with giving me an intensive education over that first weekend. Even though all these people were screaming at me, I was still learning from them. Right. And I can say that my perspective changed quite a bit over that first weekend. And after that first weekend, I felt even more strongly than I had previously that this needs to be protected. Well, let me ask you this. On that same note, there are a lot of corporations out there that do nothing. In, I think it was 1819, the U.S. Supreme Court gave corporations the same rights as individuals. However, corporations have a sole purpose to make a profit. And when CEOs aren't working to make a profit for the corporation, they're sometimes ousted and sometimes sent to jail for not doing that. Yet, corporations go, they they dump illegally, they do these horrible things, no one pays the consequences, they simply pay a fine. So one can look at corporations and say that they are soulless, And they do destructive things to communities. And here comes PayPal, who says, okay, we're going to do this thing that perhaps makes our community cleaner. I'm using quotes when I says making the community cleaner. Why is this a bad thing? Because, you know, in practice, no one wants to be involved with rape. People want to eliminate that. People want to eliminate incest. People want to eliminate bestiality. So why should it be allowed? Why, Why is this an argument to begin with? So you're asking me that question? I'm asking you that question. Because you fought this battle for these groups. Why is it important? Well, I'm going to credit Selena Kitt. Someone that we've actually interviewed on this show. Yes. She and I were communicating most of that entire week before I even sent out the first email. And she was helping to educate me about the issues. And she was helping to give me pointers on how I could defend the issues. And the big message that she gave me very early on was this message of fiction is fiction. Fiction is fantasy. It's not real. And that's what you've heard me repeating this entire campaign. And that's what I repeated to PayPal. And that's what I repeated, you know, in my media interviews, is that we've got to recognize that this is fiction. We've got to recognize that it would be bad precedent to allow any organization, any financial institution especially, to start telling writers what they're allowed to imagine and write and just start telling readers what they're allowed to read or allowed to fantasize about. Fantasy is fantasy. Fantasy is not real. Just because you read The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo doesn't mean you're going to go lock up some young woman in your basement and rape her. And so that, you know, that was the message I wanted to get out there is that we need to not fixate on rape, incest, bestiality. What we need to fixate on is that this is fiction. It's legal content. Yes, it's talking about illegal things, but so does a thriller that talks about murder or terrorism. It's fiction. It's not real. 
And why is it okay that a mainstream book will glamorize terrorism or glamorize a serial murderer, yet why is it not okay that a reader might read an erotica book and receive pleasure out of it? Right. It's fantasy. And so you can't discriminate. I agree. And also I think that another point in a larger sense is that, and you're saying that it was not moralizing by PayPal, and you know I respect that response, but let's say that potentially there was someone who decided we could choose to wait for the credit card companies to approach us, or we could actively go and take care of the situation, and they chose to actively take care of the situation. So let's say there was a company like PayPal that made a decision based on some sort of internal moral system. I think one of the important points is that PayPal is a company that we've trusted with a very important part of our economy, the Internet. We have made PayPal, we, the people who individually choose to use PayPal every time, have made them a powerful institution. And when you have a mom-and-pop store, a lot of things can go in that mom-and-pop store. You can choose to not serve who you want to not serve, and you can choose to be as negative and you know, as racist, as discriminatory as you want, and people won't notice. But when you become an international figure, like a PayPal, like a Visa, like a MasterCard, you have different responsibilities. You have a responsibility to not just your morals, but you have a responsibility to the law of the country that you're in. And PayPal becoming a backbone of the Internet and the financial system, they no longer have that individual right to choose who they can let into their store and who they can't let into their store. They have a moral obligation for the industry and the industry in that country. Right, and that's one of the points that I made, is that I felt that these electronic payment processors had a social responsibility to enable commerce. And if they get in the business of censoring it, then they kill it. Exactly. There's not a viable alternative to Visa, MasterCard, Discover, and American Express. And yes, there's alternatives to PayPal, but ultimately they all depend upon those credit card companies. So the pressure is on with the credit card companies. Yeah. How do they respond? Well, the Reuters reporter contacted them all and contacted several banks and at first didn't hear back from any of them. The real breakthrough came from a remittance girl who was the first to get a written response from a representative of Visa. Remittance girl is who? Blogger and an author. So remittance girl made a lot of effort writing into Visa, writing in the MasterCard, and received a response from Visa, a very professionally written positive response, where Visa basically said, we're fine with legal erotica. We're not banning this stuff. And so that email from Visa, I think it came in on a Friday. It was just like a week ago or a week and a half ago when that email came in. That was a big turning point because for Visa to come out and say that they weren't behind this, that was their way of saying PayPal has our permission to not enforce this. So that put pressure on MasterCard, the other big credit card company. So I think that letter came March 9th. I should say also on March 9th, the EFF had a meeting, a face-to-face meeting with PayPal that afternoon. And, you know, I was in conversation with EFF before that meeting and after the meeting. And the word I got from EFF was that they were pleasantly encouraged by what they were hearing from PayPal. And they had a sense that PayPal was seriously considering modifying their policies. Hmm. And then that weekend, TechCrunch covered that story. I wonder how TechCrunch found out about that story. I guess I can't comment on that. But that was a very smart TechCrunch reporter. <laughs> and 
And she jumped on that story that the EFF had that meeting and that PayPal was considering changing the policies. So Monday morning, the 12th, I contacted PayPal and said, look, you know, I see in that story that you guys are considering changing the policies. I'd like to come in and hear what you're thinking and provide my feedback. And assuming that things look good, I'd also like to provide my support. So I went in and I met with them, and they laid out to me what their proposed change would be. And it was everything that we wanted, everything that we were fighting for. Hmm. So I was very pleased, very pleased. And it was very clear to me in that meeting that my initial sense of who these people were and what they represented was correct. It was very clear to me that they wanted out of this mess. And I knew I wanted out of this mess. I wanted to put this behind us because this sucked up like three, almost four weeks of my life. Right. Three or four weeks that I would have much rather focused my energy and attention on building the Smashwords business, not having to fight off this threat. This was a threat. And so to hear PayPal lay out their plans and to just see how sincere they were about it was very gratifying. So I got back home after that meeting that evening, and I was planning to email all of our authors. Because PayPal laid out in very great detail to me what they were planning to do. They laid out what their concerns were. They expressed where they were coming from, how they view risk, and what the different risk factors were for them, and what it took for them to get beyond these perceived risks so that they could do the right thing. So I started composing an email to go out to all of our authors, and then I got a call from them that night asking if I would hold off on that so that they could have time to finalize their policies and communicate it themselves. Because I'm sure it was pretty clear to them at that point that every time I sent out an email to our our authors that it generated, <laughs> um, you know, our authors were taking my email and just posting it word for word on their sites. Yeah. Which is great. It's what I wanted. It, it's because by the end there, even though there was no formal pact between us and our authors, I think we were all on the same page. We were all working together. None of this would have happened without our authors standing up and expressing themselves. And that's the coolest thing about all of this. The, the authors did it. And you know how we think about it? We see that we played a role, but we all think, and this would not have happened if Mark didn't stand up and do what he did. So we all look at you and say, we're so happy that you are who you are and you've done what you've done. Because this is not a small thing. One can just look at this as, you know, an attack on erotica. One could look at it as some sort of moral issue. But ultimately, this is a constitutional issue. Mm -hmm. This is, once again, the people finding where that line of the Constitution is and who the American people are and what the American people are willing to accept. It's not a small thing. Uh, yeah, I think this was a huge, huge victory. It will be felt for years to come. Yeah, I think it'll have impact for years to come because what we all ultimately did working together is we built that protective moat around all fiction. And I think any company, any government with half a brain, if they've paid attention, will think twice before limiting creative expression. So I, I think... I think in that point of view, it was a real victory. And I think also the author community learned that they are not powerless. In the old days, it's two or three years ago, an author's credibility was really tied to the credibility of their publisher. So this indie author revolution, this indie ebook revolution that we've experienced now over the last three years, Smashwords has gone from 140 titles to over 100,000 titles, and everything else that's happened. I think this revolution kind of caught the world by surprise. I think it caught PayPal's policies by surprise. And I think in the past, PayPal, as they enforced their policies, they basically just mowed over each individual author that they targeted. Because that individual 
author had no voice. They didn't have a publisher standing behind them. And I think what happened here is that the authors, I mean, they saw what happened starting in early February and saw the writing on the wall that some bad precedent was about to happen, and then they stood up and opposed it. And speaking together, I think authors found new voice, found new credibility, and found the power as individuals working together within the community to stand up. Well, let me ask you this. This is a movement that in part was done by the independent authors. The large publishing houses, as far as I know and as far as you've said, have been silent on this. Well, not exactly. One of the first organizations along with the EFF that came to our support was an advocacy group against censorship that is sponsored by the big publishers. Hmm. One of the earliest signers of the letter that the EFF put together you know, with the assistance of these other two organizations. You know, the Authors Guild was in there. The Association of American Publishers was in there. The Independent Book Publishers Association was in there. So they did play a role. They contributed their name to the cause. Yeah, and I think if PayPal had delayed even a couple more weeks, this story was on a trajectory that was going to bring everyone to the table. So I think the big publishers, although they didn't directly lend their voice, their voice, I think, would have come. So that brings up a question about the traditional publishers. In this ebook age, should someone consider going to an established publisher? You are one of the leading self-publishing facilities in the world. What is the role of traditional publishing still? Thank you for joining me for part one of my conversation with Mark Coker, founder of Smashwords. Please be sure to join me next week as the conversation continues. Finally, would you like to know what type of erotica reader you are? As a special treat for our listeners, we at Sounds Erotic have created a free erotica personality quiz that will help you figure out what type of erotica reader you are. Go to soundseroticpodcast.com, take the quiz, and get books based on your exact erotica personality type. It's fun and kind of hot. Thank you again for joining me, Alex Anders, and please join me next time on Sounds Erotic.